and we are back with the second half of uh, season three and we actually have our first returner this is actually the first time i've had someone return from the same season to do an episode and y'all may recognize his voice but we have quia jerry on the line who was actually on the second episode alongside quia more and the pile eboard for the first part of season three so what's up quia jerry hey what's going on man i'm i'm so happy that i have you on here because i've heard plenty of stories from uh, Kuya Moore and his background, Atalizel and her background, and same thing with uh, Julius and his background, but I've never really gotten the chance to really sit down with you and talk about more of like what you've done in the past because, again, I've interacted with everyone just a little bit more than I guess we have, so I'm really curious to see like how you've started off with doing a lot of film organizing and just how it got you to where you are today. Okay, I Okay, so I guess uh, how uh, I started off was basically um, one of my good friends um, had liked a girl who just happened to be president of Pakaisa uh, at Southwestern College. So we'll just call that Paka for short. Um, and um, had mentioned, oh, they're having a student board meeting or they're having a, a general uh, body meeting um, on Tuesday. So why don't you come with me so I could hang out with hang out and check out this one girl that I like. He said, all right, I'll come by. It just happened to be spring semester. I think it was, okay, I'm going to date myself already. I think it was like 1991 spring semester. And actually, that was a very important time in my life. I just decided to get serious from school. I actually was attending another school. I dropped out and was trying to find myself and figure out what I wanted to do for my life because that, my initial plans and where I was initially going to school at didn't pan out. So I, I ended up going to Southwestern College. One of my buddies you know, encouraged me to come with them to go to a PACA meeting. And there I was. So spring semester. And I see you making you know, eyes at a young lady was talking to who just happened to be the chairperson or one of the co-chairs of PACA. And that's how I got started. They wrote me in and next next thing you know, the next meeting was elections. Someone nominated me and next thing you know, I was ICC rep. And that was my first start. And it all went downhill from there. <laughs> Man, I didn't, I didn't know there were that many connections with um, like this group of queers and Southwestern, I know that it's in proximity to where most of us live and everything, but I just didn't know that so many people were involved in some way, shape, or form. So I actually didn't know that about you before before this. Yeah, I, I, I kind of knew that, and, and I actually did that by design. I, I have to admit that uh, there was a my whole role like with Pio was I just kind of did my thing in the background. And, and, and what I was considered successful is when I didn't have to say too much that didn't have to, that had to do with what I exactly I did for Pio, which was a lot of the more legal and, you know, permission slip kind of things and vetting things, making sure we had insurance coverage and all the boring stuff. But that's like, that's what I helped with Amor with. And Amor was basically the pretty face of, of Pio. Um, but, you know, to continue on, like I, I did eventually become co-chair of, of PACA and through PACA, I got involved with a statewide organization called OPSU, and that really got me into my involvement. And And I was kind of like writing to, I was in two worlds. I was, you know, supporting the Filipino um, community uh, in San Diego through PACA with the things that we were doing at that time. But I was also doing stuff with OPSU, which was the Asian Student Pacific Union, which was a community-based organization. And it just so happened to be led by to former co-chairs of PACA. Um, and I was involved with like, um, at the time, one of the issues was um, sweatshop uh, um, issues, uh, Im uh, immigration issues. In particular, um, there was a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there was uh, women who were being abused, who were immigrants, mainly most of them were seamstress uh, working in sweatshop conditions in San Francisco and in LA. And um, some of the goods were sold throughout um, California. And um, I was a, a part of a group that was leading protests against um, certain manufacturers. Um, we were um, protesting in front of their stores and, and, and passing out information 
in uh, about how these women are being abused. And in fact, this predated um, a lot of the malls. Um, now you could say you would see signs that says you can't post bills or drop off flyers or anything without management consent. Um, we we were part of the group that helped help establish those reasons why they put those signs up there now. We, we were sitting there at every door. There were a lot of us like trying to inform the public about um, how some of their favorite brands were using sweatshop labor to make their goods and, and that the immigrant workers were not um, sharing in the profits of the goods that they were making and also working in very poor conditions. There was an incident, uh, I believe it was in, um, there was one in, in LA and also in, uh, in um, San Francisco where some um, folks had died because of the conditions there. I don't remember where the fire was, but there was also a fire. Um, so a lot of women got hurt and, and, you know, I'm pulling on memories from 30 years ago, so I'm really dating myself. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was one of my first um, issues that I, I worked on. And, and it, it actually included a lot of uh, members, uh, not only of the Chinese community, the Vietnamese community, and the Filipino community, and, oh, and also the Korean community. Those were the um, uh, majority of who the seamstress were who were being preyed upon. Man, I, okay, you're probably going to hear this a lot from me tonight, but there's a lot of stuff that I don't know about your past in terms of organizing and things, but you, you said this was one of those um, like organizations or one of those spaces that really just got you uh, more involved with things, right? Yeah. And, and that's, that's actually one of the things that kind of leading up to why, why we're talking today is about Esipasa is that, so I was cutting my teeth and learning organizing and then, you know, dealing with uh, um, trying to get folks to come out and support worthy causes um, and just kind of learning how to work with people. And and I'm pretty sure you experienced this yourself um, where you would have a sign up list for people to come. Okay, we're going to do this protest. These are the reason why sign up and, and give us your phone number and we will let you know what's going on. And, and this even predates email. So a lot of time, and at Southwest College, we didn't have email established yet at that time. So this is like 91, 92. And we're trying to get people out and try to get them organizing. It was really hard because LA made uh, had uh, was on the news. San Francisco was on the news for the protest. And we, we we barely made it on there. There wasn't a lot of us, but they did, we did get like a 10-second bite to try to get uh, folks' uh, uh, attention on some of the sweatshop issues they were having. Uh, with the products that are being sold in San, San Diego. Man, but yeah, honestly, I I wouldn't say I've experienced the same way. It's definitely, I feel like it's gotten a lot more difficult, but from what I've been seeing with um, history and everything, y'all were a lot more, I wouldn't say more civically engaged, but compared to the experiences I've had, because most of the stuff that I've done was like more on, more on the social aspect of things, it's, it's definitely a big contrast. Yeah, so so civil disobedience was was high among my peer group, and you have to think about the time period. So this is the '90s. in In early 1991, racial tensions were really strong across the country, starting with what happened in New York. And um, for those of you guys are not aware, like I believe it was 1990 or 1991, um, uh, uh, um, there was an incident where two African American children were killed. Um, um, by uh, an Hasidic Jew and the first African-American mayor at the time um, was trying to handle that issue. And, and, and in some respects, some people felt that he did not handle the issue well. So there was a lot of racial tension in New York. Now that was happening in New York. What was, what was building up, and you have to remember, this is the time when Rodney King and the beatings, and I think that was like 92, if I remember correctly, you know, we had a lot of racial tension. And in the late 80s, huge issues with gangs and um you know it and, and in fact you know um we were just riding a tidal wave of a lot of gang warfare and in fact in 1992 at morris high school where i'm a, I'm a alum from um my sister uh, who also attended uh, morris high school she was on the cross-country team and it was um her cro cross-country had discovered two bodies in front of morris high school um during um their morning run and it was basically signaling what was going on, a lot of racial tension, not just in New York, but also in, in California. So there was a lot of things going on, and, and that may help spur um, some of uh, the civil disobedience that occurred. Because during that time period, we also had 187 and Proposition 209, which um, basically effectively ended affirmative action, which is something that 
really, really catapulted, at least Esipasa uh, and KP and uh, Saman and a lot of the groups, because we rallied together. And, and in fact, um, uh, I, I don't remember the exact year with, with 209, but then um, KP came out in force and um, had um, participated in a lot of uh, civil disobedience where we actually stopped the traffic um, going onto the freeway on the five. And, and for those of you who know where, UC, where UCSD is located, um, there's an off-ramp that feeds onto the five, uh, on the five south and um, KP members and as well as uh, folks from uh, the Latinx community from uh, La Raza, Mecha, um, also WSU, which was our African-American student union, JAMS, the Japanese-American um, at the time, um, uh, that's what they were called, um, had participated uh, in a couple of the um, different um, other um, API uh, organizations to help block traffic. And, and that was some of our civil disobedience during that time period. Um, I, I helped at least organize with the KP side of it, and I did pass that information out to my SEPAS network. Man, I, I knew that a lot of the tensions were high back in the 90s, but I, I can't even imagine what it must have been like because at that time, like during Rodney King and that other um, situation that you mentioned in New York, like I wasn't even an idea then. I wasn't even born. And I've heard stories from other people and it, it's just wild actually hearing them and the fact that you were one of the, the people that experienced it or you had peers, family members that have experienced it too. And a lot of people in our own San Diego community have experienced it as well. So it's like, I don't know, I guess it feels just like another like reality check, like, hey, this was what was going on. And it felt like it really spurred a lot of the organizing, like you were saying, like everyone was feeling this heat, this tension. They just wanted to relieve it somehow or maybe even just, I don't know, fix what was going on. Does that sound about right? Yes. And, and, and you know, the 90s were, I mean, it was punctuated at the beginning of the decade, you know, with the death of the, the two young children and also with other racial tension at the end of the decade. And during this time, you know, thinking about it, you know, um, to frame it, Bill Clinton was president. We just came from from uh, um, Bush Sr. Um, was uh, the outgoing president uh, in, in the late um, 80s. And then Bill Clinton um, became president. And, you know, there was a time when progressive thought seemed to be um, the sort of mode of the, the day for uh, mainstream politics. Um, but yet, even though, you know, things started getting better and, and crime started changing in the 90s, it started becoming, it was starting to get better and building like to, up to today where where crime overall is down, but we're seeing, you know, this is property crime, but where we're seeing violent crime where right now it seems like it's, it's on the rise up. Now it's too early to tell if it's truly, like how truly it's up. But if you look at where it's up, it's up in areas where people of color are at. So, so like during that time period, like just reflecting back then, and then now with school shootings and things like that, um, there was a, actually another student, and I, I, I don't, I was watching CNN, and he had mentioned he goes, you know, it's now it's getting the attention nationally about school shootings when it's happening at schools where it's mostly white. Now I'm paraphrasing what, what he said. That's not exactly how he said it. I'm just you know sanitizing a little bit. But he was angry when he said it. He was saying it's always been happening. And throughout my life as a kid, I experienced um, those kind of things when I would go to parties and, and things of that nature. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I've been to parties where I would be stopped at the drive-by, and I think I mentioned it during the pie episode. But that was my reality when I was a uh, you know in my late teens and early twenties when I was going through college where. I lived in a neighborhood that had two drive-bys on my street and drive-bys around. I, I lived near Encanto or Skyline. And, you know, I, I don't like saying this name a lot, but I live near the four corners of death. For those of you that are from Southeast San Diego, know what I'm talking about. It's that intersection by St. Rose, where it's uh, Imperial and um, Euclid. And it is just, you know, th that's just where a lot of gangs met. And there was um, gang wars going at the time. You know, um, and it was just a heavy time. So Essie Pasa, when when I got involved with Essie Pasa, that that was was fueling me. I wanted to create or be a part of something that would create a safe space for people to come and get educated and to better themselves. But I, I felt like I've lived like kind of like a double life. So I'll be going to school like Southwestern College, and then eventually when I joined Essie Pasa, I was going to UCSD. So I'll be in La Jolla 
one of the nicer parts, more affluent part of San Diego. And then I would drive home to Paradise Hills, um, the hood, and it's that dichotomy just always kind of blew me away. Every day I did that 30, 40 minute drive, driving home. I was a commuter and, um, you know, I was active with KP and listening to the problems and struggles of, of the folks up there and then having to deal with the reality that was a little bit different than, than the people I was going to school with. And, you know, I, there wasn't a lot of people that I went to school with that was from down south. There was maybe one other person. And, um, you know, she had her own issues, but we kind of gave each other the nod because we both came from Paradise Hills. It's just like you, you kind of just know at that moment because, I mean, again, like everyone or at least most everyone knows what kind of tension was going like around during that time. I mean, you said that there were like, what gang shootings, gang wars, gang, like gang warfare all throughout that time. I mean, it's it's definitely calmed down way more now. And like everyone is a lot more, I, I don't know where I was going with this, but it's definitely changed since then. But th- I, I, I don't know if I could fully attest to the whole um, like double life thing. Maybe it's just because I'm from a different generation, but I guess it does kind of feel like that because you're, living you were living your life as a student and then you were doing life back in ph back in Encanto, and it's just like you were living a lot of the i don't know i, I forgot where i was going with this but you were just living like yeah, very I, differently I like, but to make things even more complicated so in 1995 i actually joined the united states marine corps and um i and that was right after i was eligible to transfer to ucsd so i decided to do that as sort of my backup plan that if I wasn't um, going to make it in, uh, in the civilian world, that you know, I, I would go active duty in the Marine Corps. So uh, originally I was going to go active duty, but my when I was in the delayed entry program, my last um, year before I was going to before I was transfer eligible to UCSD, um, I, I was intercepted at MEPS. And for those of you that join the military or have parents or relatives that join the military, MEPS is basically the processing center. And this person convinced me to not go active duty, go reserves and go for a commission. Because at the time I had two years of community college under my belt and I was getting ready to transfer and I had decent grades. And they're like, oh, why don't you consider becoming an officer? So I considered that. So I changed my path from going um, infantry in the United States Marine Corps to go work with uh, computer systems and data for the Marine Corps and go into the reserves. So that was the plan where I would go in, go to boot camp, um, do some active duty time. Then when it's time for me to go to school, get um, get discharged from active duty and then enter the reserves and then finish my college. And then at the end of college, become an officer uh, was initially my plan. So wh- when I was doing that, um, and the reason why I mentioned that just to, to kind of add that is, is even though I was getting shot at, <laughs> not directly, but at parties and events, and sometimes there was some things that was going on. I was also getting trained by the, the military, like how to handle weapons and to do that. And it was very interesting knowledge that I was gaining. And I felt a little like weird uh, going through that, 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 that one weekend, I, you know, I would be out partying with my friends, you know, doing the college life. And uh, there would be a drive-by because, you know, it's a party in the hood or the cops would shut, um, shut it down or whatever have you. And then the next weekend I, I'll be out, you know, doing maneuvers with my platoon. Um, so it, it was definitely an interesting experience. And I was doing all this while also um, being part of PACA and then transitioning to KP and Pasa. So it, it gave me kind of an interesting perspective. I was getting very formal leadership training uh, through the military. And, you know, I was uh, um, doing things that not a lot of people in my age group, or at least you know, like a lot of people around me were doing, especially, you know, at UCSD, like the military to a lot of my friends that were were totally alien. There was only one other person at the time and he actually ended up dropping out of UCSD and and joining the army. But later on, um, there were two transfers and that, that were also in the military. So we kind of shared some camaraderie with what we were experiencing there. Man, it's like you're, I wouldn't say triple life, but you're definitely, you were, you had a very unique experience during this time. I mean, the 90s for you was pretty wild in, in terms of just what you were experiencing. Yeah, I mean, when you're young, you know, you try to do as much as you can. I tried to live life. I mean, one day uh, I was in the desert on a tank, you know, doing maneuvers and, you know, then the next thing you know, I was 
you know, um, running a GBM at KP. It, it was very interesting. And I try to keep those lives separate because I did run into some of the more militant folks um, in our community, um, you know, that they would talk about revolution and idolize revolutionaries. And they weren't really advocating for like the kind of like a violent revolution, but they were advocating for, for really extreme change. And some of the language did get a little like, you know, what if we did this and what if we did that? You know, a lot of hypotheticals. And I just sit there in the back of my mind thinking, you know, uh, and this is pre-Halo and pre-all the, the games, uh, you know, Call of Duty. Like, you don't know what it's like running around, you know, with, with all this gear on and, and trying to do that. It's not as easy as you think. And, and it's scary. You know, I, there were times where I'm sitting here and I'm all like, you know, yeah, I thought it was cool. You know, I, I really, you know... It, you know, there's some things like, wow, this is the stuff you do in the movies, but it was all, almost surreal because then the next day, I, you know, I, I would, I would, you know, I have to go back. It would be a drill weekend, come come back, put on my civilian clothes. And now I'm, you know, KP officer this or as he possibly that. It was that. But 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 to, the, I used those skills, though, to kind of help, you know, punctuate the time that I spent at Esipasa and try to bring that sense of uh, camaraderie and community with the groups I interacted with. And, and it actually, I, I try to, sh- I, I, you know, for the people that knew me at the time, they would probably say this is far from the truth that I try to shy away from the limelight. And I, I try to put people uh, ahead of me to try to promote other organizations. Like I always saw Essipasa as sort of a way to, to highlight every school. So when it was friendship games, I always made sure. And at the time I, the president, his name was June. I used to make sure that he got as much, time in front of everybody so that way everybody knew what was going on when the things were what events were happening um they at that time san diego wasn't as involved with friendship games we were still trying to tell everybody what friendships games was in the mid 90s and late 90s and we made sure that we brought um uh, uh fullerton down to go to sdsu to go to the community colleges we even organized a picnic where um uh, uh they would all we would do is preview all the friendship games and then you know everyone would come out you know uh Cuyamaca college even came out you know we got some of the community college to come out you know usd came out you know and and we did that and we introduced that and then now there's seems to be very good participation in friendship games from a lot of the san diego schools and not just the four years but also the community the community colleges man see, hearing you talk about some of those smaller events that go along with uh, friendship games and everything is making things like very very surreal because a lot of this kind of stuff is i mean not currently right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and everything but all those like smaller events have become standard and it seems like it was what during your years in se pasta when a lot of those things were pretty much like set into stone or rather like this was the foundation of like okay this is why we're going to this event or this is why we're attending this event or this is why we're trying to like connect with these people or whatever is that does that sound about right yeah, and and actually, from the things that we were doing with Essie Pasa, um, there was a group who wanted saw how powerful San Diego was as a group, and saw and and had some feelings. Same thing with me. You know, we we noticed that Essie Pasa was a very LA centric organization, which kind of helped spark FCC. And um, I, I remember South Floor, the current um, advisor of uh, AB Samhan at the time, you know, encouraging. Um, folks to kind of, yeah, we should come up with our, with a group that's specific San Diego. So that way we could use that to organize and go up as a group. Cause at the time, Southwestern college was really strong. They, I, I think um, uh, there, there was a, a, one of the friendship games. Um, one of the older Quias had actually um, uh, had an RV and drove up with a bunch of Southwestern folks, uh, Paca folks in an RV. I, I didn't go to that one cause I had duty that weekend, but I heard it was a blast. And there was a couple of, ones of like events that I missed because I had duty. So I was, there's a couple of things where I was MIA at, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I heard a lot of things that, that had happened um, with San Diego and just kind of like that group and how strong and, and that kind of helped spark, you know, or help give birth to FCC. Man, that that's pretty wild in the sense that, well, okay. So just a little bit of background on me. I was um, the Filipino collegiate collaborative rep, for Southwestern during my years um, with PACA and everything. And I kind of wish we had some of this, um, like, 
I, I guess some of these history lessons, because I haven't had the chance to really talk to Sal about this, but I'm hoping I get the chance to. I'm actually trying to talk to um, Ata Christi Kiyogi to see if there's like more information with that. But like y'all really did set the foundation for a lot of the, the stuff we were doing here in San Diego. I mean, what well, it was for, I think you mentioned this like off recording, but like there was some downtime between like San Diego's involvement with SC Pasa and then like it ended up coming back. And I feel like that was really just thanks to like everyone that came before us. And that's also part of the reason why I needed to have you on here because there's a lot of history that isn't really being highlighted. Yeah, there, there is. And to even, well, and, and actually that's one of the things I wanted to mention was I even noticed this back in the 90s that we had a lot of generational amnesia, if you will. We Our, our ability to pass on our own history, even with our own org state side, is horrible. You know, I would hope groups like FONS would help sort of be a place where we could keep that history. And, and, and I did give a lot of stuff that I had to members of FONS to kind of put in their archives. And I don't know if it ever made it to Seattle, but things that would document some of the things that we have. So the different conferences and summits that we did during my time, not as SE PASA, but as different groups. And I know that um, now um, SE PASA um, does uh, what seems to be a regular summit. But um, one of the things um, to highlight that, that sort of thing that I'm, I'm I'm insinuating about having generational amnesia is that even back as the late uh, the 70s, they were doing what they call conferences back then or some summits now. Things that when I looked at those flyers from uh, um, um, so someone in Fonz um, had showed me some documentation, basically flyers and programs from this event called the West Coast Conference, and I was amazed. And I don't remember the exact date, but it was in the 70s, and they had very similar topics that they have now. They were asking questions about identity. They were asking about why are my parents not involved in politics or what does it mean to be Filipino-American? What does it mean to be Filipino? What's going on in the Philippines and why is it relevant to me? You know, why do my parents talk to me the way that they do? All these identity-based things and, and cultural things and similar issues about identity come up time and time again in the different conferences. Now, um, that just implies to me that not not that we don't necessarily do a good job of informing each other about our identity, but that actually begs a bigger question. You know, um, now uh, now I'm a parent. I have two kids, and I know um, the generation before me has kids, and their kids went to college, and some of them put together those summits, conferences that ask the same questions. So now I'm trying to think, okay, how can I stop this cycle where we're always asking? You know, who am I trying to find ourselves, trying to find our identity? So I do everything that I can to try to inform my kids so that way they won't seek or, or, or struggle with their identity like the way I did when I was going through college. And what's funny is I still remember I'm at uh, um, I'm in, I'm at Eastlake High School. I'm in their um, in their theater. I'm holding my son. He's barely one years old. And I'm watching, or maybe, actually, no, uh, maybe he's a little bit older, uh, a little bit older than one. And I'm watching you dance on stage um, and thinking, you're here because I don't want you to struggle with your identity. And I know it, our identity is more than just, you know, Pio's culture night, but that's a start, you know. And, and with my kids, I try to educate them. Like last summer, we spent a whole month where we, tackle topics of being Filipino. We started off with food, then we talk about values, then we talk about very physical things. Why is rice important to our culture? How do we grow rice? Why is, uh, you know, uh, what are the superstitions related with rice? And I try to teach them all those things to help them understand parts of our identity. And, and so that way I could help stop that cycle. You know, it's still important for people to dialogue about their identity. We'll probably never be able to, you know, you know, that's too big of a thing to get rid of, but at least have them where they have a sense, have some more of a sense than I had, because I had no idea. My parents, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in Hawaii. That's where I first got indoctrinated into institutional education here in the United States. The counselors told my parents not to teach, not to teach me Ilocano, which was my parents' dialect. And for those of you that are know about Hawaii, you you can't go anywhere in uh, um on the leeward side without running to someone that speaks Ilocano. And um, unfortunately, I couldn't communicate with any of them because my parents were told not 
to teach their kids Ilocano. And, you know, language is the key to culture. You know, one of my limitations of understanding what it means to be Filipino is because despite how many semesters I took at Southwestern College, the, the Tagalog class, now Filipino, um, I, I didn't, I, I still can't think in, in Tagalog. I still can't think in Filipino because you have to think in the language to understand the culture. You know, it's more than just eating lumpia and rice. It's more than our dances. It's having that mindset that the language, knowing how they think. And, and when I was learning Tagalog, I, I noticed the, I don't know if I'm expressing this, but there's a little bit of sarcasm, sarcasm when you speak Tagalog. You know, like when you ask, how are you? And then you reply, oh, the one of the traditional responses is I'm barely breathing. That's what it would translate literally. But that's not what you're actually saying. It just means you're getting by. But I, I, I just hope that my part as being a parent could help alleviate, you know, my son's, my son's future struggle or hopefully minimize the struggle for, for his identity. I, I think that's probably like one of the biggest things that you've done for like myself and probably like the other generations that have come after me is the fact that you give us like these little nuggets of knowledge here and there because you never know when some of this may may get lost. I mean, I, I think we may have had this conversation in the past about like how Fonz has documented some of their stuff. Like I'm pretty sure and not to discredit like the work that Fonz does, but there's a lot of information that is out there that's like, not recorded or just like not stored anywhere or even for that matter like even shared to the rest of the public and i feel like that's kind of messed up in a sense because everyone's losing out on so much good information you're losing out on like how you got here how like some other people got here like some people are even losing like their sense of language and honestly like when we had that culture night for pio like that that was probably like one of my biggest um exposures to any kind of culture and yeah it did solidify a lot of different things but growing up and just hearing you say that yeah it's not just all about the dances and the food there's like a lot more to it there's the interactions there's the way we even like make our food the way like we speak or even just the way that um how how language is formed <laughs> like there's so much that um we're not really, I guess, not really informing people about it. And I feel like that's something that needs to change. And even like you even said it before, like these conversations have been constantly had within like the Phil Am community. And I feel like it is something that's going to continuously be had. But I feel like there are ways to, I guess, somewhat alleviate it. I don't know if that's the right word I'm trying to go for, but yeah, I I know what you mean by that. You know, not you can't you can never believe it because that's just a part of of growing up and trying to because there's the one one thing about being bicultural, if you will, being Filipino American, Filipino ex American, is that not only do we have to navigate being young and trying to define who we are as people, but also trying to define what does it mean to be Filipino within that context. I struggle with that because I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm in environments where colonial mentality, colonial mentality, uh, that colonial mentality is really strong, especially among the military. You know, we get taught to follow orders, you know, we're, we're taught to have a certain viewpoint and, and it's hard to kind of think out of that box. And, um, and my uh, people that I've served with um, who, who are Filipino ex, you know, have that colonial mentality and it's hard to get out of it and i i still struggle with this day i i always have to say because i do have a conservative streak no matter how liberal i am i still have that conservative streak because i was raised by conservative parents or or uh, seemingly conservative parents um and um i i always have to think about you know uh, is, uh, I always have to think about twice before i open my mouth when i want to talk about something political because i'm thinking wait 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 a minute think about it to know your history, and then and then it, it makes me formulate my responses because sometimes my knee jerk reaction is based on how I was raised, and that's tough. You know, I always have to deal with that. It's part of my identity, um, and I still struggle with 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 this day. But it's also you know you're a product of your environment. I mean, I, I grew up during a time you know where violence and, and and struggle was there, and and actually my upbringing is is more about having learning how to survive, and and like dealing with you know I, I came from strong blue collar roots. My parents, you know, we weren't poor. I mean, we were part of the Navy, but, you know, my dad wasn't, uh, didn't climb ranks so much later in his career in the Navy. And, um, you know, we didn't have a ton of money. And uh, it was hilarious because we knew that when there was a sale uh, at the Navy exchange, because we all had the same shirts, maybe different color, 
but a lot of the people that are also, you know, from 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 that time period and, and you know, were the same rank, you know, you didn't have a lot. And and, and, and it, it really affected our identity. I, I think that's the biggest thing because like I, I've learned a lot about this in school and I've seen this happen in real life. Environment is probably one of the biggest factors that comes to how we carry ourselves. I mean, like my my de- my generation is definitely like significantly different compared to yours and even significantly different to the generation that's come after like as like millennials we're still trying to navigate like how we're calling out and calling in people and then you have like the gen z's that are a lot more like outspoken they're a lot more willing to to call out people without really like a second thought i mean i wouldn't say like a without a second thought but they're more like i don't know maybe they're just a little bit more brave to call people out and i feel like it might have been well, I mean, was it different like back then? It was like trying to figure out just how to navigate it, like you were saying, right? Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned because I think some of it had to do with hiyak. So, you know, your shame. And and actually, that's part of the responsibility that I have to actually admit when, you know, hearing you say, wow, I didn't know about these stories about you and the things that you did. And it's different. Yeah, I I, I am terrible about, you know, telling people the things that I've done in the past just simply because of that sense of shame. And that has to also do with the fact that, in addition to all the other things I grew up in, you know, I was raised Catholic and having that Catholic guilt. And if you're doing well at anything and you're showing off, that's not good because, you know, the Lord could take it away. And and I, I may not be as religious as, as I was when I was younger, but, uh, you know, that played a strong role. That, that Catholic guilt for a lot of us that know what that is was strong in me. <laughs> I mean, it, it made me like, like, even though, you know, I got rewarded, uh, recognized as a student when I was at Southwestern, I got some scholarships. I, I turned my, I, I got focused as a student. I mean, I wasn't a bad kid. I had a lot of friends, like, I think leading up to, um, to Southwestern College and then eventually UCSD, I, I didn't have a lot of Filipino best friends. My best friend in elementary school, he went to juvie when I was in fifth grade. And even before that, my best friend, he was African-American at the time. He went to juvie too. And then a Filipino best friend, he went to, to juvie. And then then after that, I found one best friend. He just happened to be Latinx. And he was my best friend up until he went to a different high school. And then I kind of didn't have a, a friend, uh, like a, a true best friend at that time. But, you know, I, I had girlfriends at the time that I was dating and they were pretty much my friend. But I didn't really have a Filipino best friend since elementary school because I, I lost a lot to, to, to juvenile delinquency, jail. I, I had friends that went to jail and, and eventually prison. And I, I just didn't have a lot of friends that were Filipino. And, and you know, I, that just, that was just the environment that I was in. And um, I didn't have that bond. And, and that kind of primed me for everything else. So um, that, that gang life that I saw, even though I was on the outside, I had a lot of people looking out for me and keeping me out of that life and uh, looking out for me and um, putting me on the straight and narrow. I mean, right now, my, my last friend or closest friend that was Filipino, I don't know where he is. The last time I heard he, he was in rehab, he was addicted to uh, crystal meth. He had almost passed away. His mom was trying to find me because he was trying to get me to interact with him to try to get him to go to school. And I couldn't do that. You know, I, I, I didn't know where I was. I couldn't relate with him. We were two different people by that time. And, you know, I suffered a lot of loss as, as, a, as a kid, but just losing friends just to, to the environment. And it sucked. And it primed me to want to try to make a difference in the community, starting with trying to help the press, you know, the, the seamstresses um, that lost their lives in, in, in a fire. And then moving on to trying to um, help Filipinos um, uh, 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 get into college. But then as I started becoming more educated in, in, in our community, because Filipinos right now, we have a great capacity to, the, and I have to hand it to our parents, to get us into college. But it's graduating, sticking to our majors, picking the right majors, staying in there, and making it through college. Um, you know, and 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 some of the research that was done by Dr. Manzan. You know, um, and uh, you know he had recently passed, so uh, you know we lost a, a great researcher and a, a great faculty at SDSU when Dr. Manzan had passed. But even his research had showed that um, a lot of uh, Filipinos have a hard time going through school. And, um, you know, trying to find the reasons uh, why, you know, uh, because of the majors that we pick and the pressures that we have at home. Man, that that in itself is already a complex thing. And like, 
I mean, yeah, rest in peace to Dr. Ray because he's done so much yes. for this community and everything. And just like the the amount of work that he's put in for a lot of us and just all the all the stuff that he's educated us on has really like positive positively affected just like or not po- well, I mean positively affected us in a way where we actually start to question things a lot more. And I think that also has to do with like your your generation as well. I mean, I know Dr. Ray is a little bit like older and everything, but like your generation with uh Kuya Moore and Dr. Ray and like even older with um Sal and uh Felix, like y'all have set the the stage for a lot of us and you you mentioned the whole idea of like environment and just like changing things up and just making sure that everyone is like good at the end of the day. And that work has shown a lot. I mean, you, you've told us that uh, you did a lot of um, the behind the scenes work for Pio, but I mean, if it wasn't for the work that you were doing, we probably would not be as sustained as we are right now. And we, we talked about it before with like the Pio podcast and everything, but we're we're going on 20 years as an organization right now. And that has to do with just all those little things that y'all have done, what you've Kuya Mora have done and what have, what has Atalizel done and what Julius has done and what even folks like Ata Melissa, Kuya Ray, like everyone that's uh, that has come before us. Like the reason we're at 20 years is because there was work that was, was done by y'all. Yeah, it, it definitely was definitely a group. Uh, effort and all the things that we've done as a as a collective, and 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 you'll notice that that myself and, and some of the Ates and Quias that were a part of of Pio at the time, um, especially when when Pio was a community based org um, rather than based out of East Lake, um, many of the folks came from that um, southeastern part of San Diego Paradise Hills um, area, went to Morris High School or Sweetwater, and a lot of us, you know, were from the south. And and it, because you know, there's definitely a unique need within the south because some of us had to deal with more issues that were more. Um, survival-based, um, you know, how to navigate these things. And, and also even the struggles we have today, because, because you know, I one of the biggest um, criticisms that I have about the community is that, you know, there is, um, even though there's a lot of us and there's a lot of us that are active and positive, there's still some fractures within our community, you know, and you could tell, um, you could tell just by, by looking at the people there. I, and I, I hate to be so superficial in saying it that way, but I still see it today and I, I saw back in my day so in Essipasa one of the things that I struggled with and I had mentioned to you that some of my goals for Essipasa was to get San Diego more involved and I'm glad now seeing that the current board that there's people from San Diego involved in Essipasa and also getting community colleges involved because I came from Southwestern College I've always had Southwestern and pocket in my heart because it's what got me started and I wanted to make sure and I'm glad to see that there's a lot of community college involvement there but Participation also depends on the kind of people that was made up. And, and one of the things that, that as a group that we struggled with is a lot of people who actually spoke the language. And there's a term that back in my day was used very, uh, was used in such a negative way and it's fog. And I really hated that word. I, at first I didn't know, I didn't pay attention to it. And even when I first met Amor and him trying to win me over to become a part of PACA, um, I've had people say, oh, who's that guy? Oh, he's a fob. He's trying to get us to join his organization. He wants to listen to him. And I'm like, really, guys? If we're a Filipino organization, we're making fun of somebody that speaks the language? But it was still happening back then, and I still see some inklings of that even to today, that there's some biases. Now, it's better. Uh, it seems better. I don't know if it actually is better. I don't have any data to support that. And... um but it does seem a little bit better. I do see a little bit more love for those that have recently immigrated. But, you know, that that's just something that, that I noticed that, that we still have a lot of cliques and, and a lot of fractions. And even in L.A., like I, I noticed that I, I was trying to get as much like I was going through and preparing for today, looking to see how Essipasa has changed and to see, you know, who's active and who's not. And sometimes, you know, I, I even in my day, one of the reasons why, you know, my year was as successful as it was, <clears throat> was because, you know, I brought in a lot of things personally. Um, the way that uh, my whole thing with with Pasa was, I, I my goal was always to get as many people connected, ma- make organizations that don't normally interact interact. When Slow came down and they don't, they're a little farther out. You know, some people even debated is Slow still part of SoCal? They're like right at that border. 
And I go, well, you know, if they come, they're a part of us. And, you know, and anybody who came, even people outside of state that would come and visit our meetings, they were a part of us. And I just try to encourage that. And some spoke the language and some did not. And and just making sure to make you feel everyone welcome. Well, one thing that's actually kind of cool with that is like the fact that they're, we, we were talking about identity a little bit while ago, but just that whole nature of being a lot more, um, I'm trying to figure out the word for it, but it's just like very, very welcoming. Like the culture in itself is very welcoming. And I think that's like something that's um, been brought more to the forefront. And I don't know if I have any data to support that either, but it's definitely calmed down quite a bit. Like I personally haven't heard anyone use the term fob at all in in that kind of like racial slur type of thing or even just like cultural slur kind of um issue but yeah i I would definitely say a lot more people have become like welcoming and i don't know maybe it's just how generations have been people have become a lot better with that kind of thing and then it's just been passed down yeah i think i think it has i mean even with my own family like i encourage like i i know that when you know when my parents came and they were introducing me to American edu- the educational uh, system as a kindergartner in, in, element- in the elementary school system in, in Hawaii, where they're telling them not to teach me the language to now where counselors are encouraging people to speak the language. And in fact, I have my daughter's enrolled in a dual emergent uh, uh, program where she's learning Spanish along with English in kindergarten. And even though we're in the pandemic and some of it is Zoom, so it's even harder I know the importance of being bilingual. I wish it could be Tagalog. We're not quite there yet. But when she gets older, I, you know, and I have connections with the, the folks that do run the Filipino school. And hopefully, you know, even though they're out in, uh, was it Scripps Ranch, Marimesha area, it's a little bit of a drive for us here down south in, in the southern part of San Diego. But if we're able to, I, I want to take her there on Saturdays for Filipino school, basically. You know, and, and I, I always... You know, I like being able to say that because I know that when I worked, uh, um, what I do professionally, I I interacted a lot with folks who are Jewish and they bring their kids to Hebrew school on Saturday. And I've had other doctors that I've worked with who would take their kids to Japanese school or to Korean school. I'm glad that we do have a space where where we could potentially do that. Now, I believe they're still there and I do get emails from them. I just don't know like how they're doing their classes at this moment, but once they start doing more in-person stuff, I hope to have my kids interact with the Filipino school in the near future. No, honestly, I I think that just goes back to what you were saying about the whole environment thing. I mean, you're exposing your kids to things that a lot of people did not have access to back in the day, like a lot more, like I, I wouldn't say like tolerant, but a lot more like back then, I guess schools and just like how, like the educational industry was like they weren't really tolerant of these um like i don't know kids speaking like another language but now it's become this requirement to just get out of high school or even to just get into college and the fact that yeah everyone is encouraging people to learn languages at a much younger age i mean with like my program with child development and everything like we emphasize that so much because that shapes who what your identity is like if you lose that i mean there's a big part of your identity that people are missing. Like granted, not everyone is required to speak the language, but it's still a big factor when it comes to this, because in some way, shape or form, it does connect you back to like who you are as a person. And the fact that you're doing that for the next generation again is very big because you're breaking or what was the term? Like you're intervening for like this next generation, because a lot of people didn't have that back in the day. Yeah, I, I, but I, I think um, I know there's a lot of folks that that have a very similar mindset to mine when it comes to their their children. But that's because I'm trying to, you know, because we're trying to make the world a better place. Not only in the activism or the organizing that that we have done or are doing, uh, but also in our own lives. Because because one of the things that that people are surprised, like when when I was part of Pasa, everyone assumed that I was basically like humanities major, like I was ethnic studies or Asian studies or history, sociology, something like that. But when they would find out that I was actually more in the sciences and and it, and, and maybe I kind of hinted towards it that I'm kind of like a database person because, you know, I currently work in clinical research right now. And I spent many years working on uh, medications like uh, 
like I, I worked on antidepressant for, or been working in depression research for a long time. And um, also other um, diseases that affect the mind uh, and brain and, and, and therapies that can kind of prevent those things or to help uh, mitigate the symptoms that different things I, I worked on besides depression, I worked in MS, Alzheimer's disease and um, but uh, and some other things. But because I have so much research experience, I, my company actually had helped ask me to also help um, manage um, a couple of uh, um, research institutions uh, when it comes to uh, COVID-19. And I'm currently working on one of the vaccines uh, that's being used um, to help fight the pandemic. And, and it seems like, uh, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm saying this not because I actually say this very kind of uh, uh, carefully or, or, or kind of uh, um, cheapishly because, you know, that HIA kind of still comes out and that's the part of that I was kind of indoctrinated to our culture where when you're trying to tell what people do and not try to be boastful about it, but I know how important the work that I'm in is impacting not just our community, but the world. And I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't want to be boastful about it, but, you know, I guess that's just kind of being Filipino in, in the way that I grew up different from this generation. Cause y'all really post a lot of stuff on Instagram. And I still remember some of the things on Instagram that I saw you do. I'm like, what are you, why are you doing that for? And I'm like, I could not do that. I don't know if it's because um, I look terrible without a shirt on and I can't do as many pushups as you can, but I, I have a hard time talking about some of the stuff that I've done. But even though my current work is impactful in the, you know, um, on a bigger scale, um, you, you know, I just have a hard time doing that. And that's actually one thing that you identified that there's a lot of things you don't know about me. And I have a hard time talking about some stuff that, that I do because it does garner some attention and sometimes unwanted attention. And, and sometimes, you know, uh, I'll be asking really tough things and I have to be careful with some things that I say, because even though I, I know a lot about what's going on, you know, it, you have to say things in science. We have to be very precise on, on how we say things. And I try to do it also with my community work. And I also try to back up things with data. And I'm very a stickler with that uh, when it comes to, you know, having those smart goals where you can really see things and using those professional skills that I've developed and, and really incorporating the things that I do. And in fact, a lot of things, that I can credit to the reason why I'm doing the work now is because of the things that I did as a part of SE Plaza and PIO. And whenever I get a chance to talk about, you know, my professional work, I love talking about it. Um, but also I talk in such a way where I'm not trying to be boastful with some things that I do, but I know some of the work that I do is very impactful and I get recognized at work for some things that I do, but, you know, I really want to help everybody, not, not just our community, but the, the community at home. That, that's why I do that. But that's why people are surprised when they find out, oh, you, you, you don't work in, you know, uh, you know, some kind of a, a, a urban studies kind of thing or, or, or work in, in youth development. And, and I don't. Um, it's my passion, but, but not how I pay the bills. Yeah, honestly, like the, the, the fact that you're saying this is definitely a big step because, I mean, you, you mentioned how like Kia is what was a thing and it's I feel like it still is a thing like that I mean there are times when I personally feel embarrassed to talk about like certain things like I kind of like shell up whenever I have to talk about this podcast in person or whenever people bring it up I'm just like oh this is this feels a little bit weird but I mean a lot of that is still ingrained within like our society and everything like I, I wasn't raised Catholic or anything, but there were still some of those, um, like, hey, don't be boastful. Try not to, like, show yourself too much or not try to, like, I don't know, stay in the limelight too much. And I think that was one of the things that really just rubbed off on a lot of us because I noticed how, like, some of us in Pio still kind of do that to this day whenever, like, I mean, if, if we look at, like, who is in Pio and just how much they've, like, accomplished in like the organizing space as well as like the professional space it's like man they've done so much stuff but like we don't really hear too much about it and it does go back to that whole aspect of Pia. but i am thankful that you did take the time to talk a, a, about it a little bit more because you never know if there's someone in payo someone in se pasa or even someone from kp or paca that will hear the story and be like oh this is why this is the way it is this is why we have these picnics up in like Fullerton or this is why friendship games is the way it is, or this is why um, SoCal Pasa is the way it is, or pretty much like all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, thank you for allowing me to hear your story and allowing for everyone to hear your story too. Yeah. And it's, it's only really the tip of the, the iceberg. There's just so much that happened in those times. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I, I, I wish, you know, we had uh, hours and hours to talk about it. But the, the one thing that, that, that I say is that the progress where we are now I, is immense, you know, e even though I am hard and, and I'm a very strong critic of our community, but we have a beautiful community and we've done a lot and came a long way. Yes, there are some things that we still, that still keep on coming up as themes within our community and struggles that we have, but it's becoming less and less. And I'm glad that the struggle for basic survival, you know, having a safety, like worried about what's going to happen at school um, and things like that are, are not really the norm now. Now, you know, school shootings are rare um, and they don't happen. But during my time, those were things that, that I mean, we found dead bodies around my high school. There was a shooting in the back and one of my friend's boyfriends was shot and killed in the back of Morris High School. And, and, and um, and, and parties I would go through, and that was just part of my reality. But I'm glad that it's smooth, and I'm glad that I don't that that part of my life is not as relevant to the kids and students in our area now in San Diego. But in the larger sense, I could see myself relating to other kids in, in other areas where they're still doing with that. And and in, you know, I'm, I'm glad I have those experiences, and I could and and I could really identify with them and, and the fear and, and the confusion and, and also just kind of deal with some of the um, other things about growing up Filipino during my time period. And, and now the things now, it's just more of like, now let's look at like some of the research that Dr. Manzan did and also Dr. Maramba. She did some also good research in Filipinos as they progress through the educational system here in the U.S. and take some of that that data and kind of use it to kind of help our, our students because it's not uncommon for a lot of Filipino kids right now to change their majors and to do this and, and not get exposed like their Caucasian counterparts may do when they're in high school. And that's why piles around, you know, that, that, that whole thing. And, and, and as you pasa, for the most part, that's what I was trying to do is trying to get people exposed, get people connected support each other so that we could get through our majors because it, it you know that was actually during my year the the running joke was pretty much everyone was a super senior had five years and it took them longer to graduate and the funny thing is we weren't all engineering majors some of us it, you know didn't have as tough um course load as some of the engineering majors but you, you know it's for some reason just as ray monson's data showed that it does take us a little bit longer to graduate and and as he pauses, trying to share those things, everything from how to make effective study groups and things like that, you know, just having that kind of programming and even the support. I can't tell you my grades actually didn't get worse during Culture Night for Kate when I was part of um, Culture Night, but actually got better. I got off of AP uh, probation because in college, when you get on AP, it's bad. When you're in high school, AP is good if you, you know, you know if you're an AP. But in college, when you get an AP academic probation, that's not good. And actually, I got off of AP when I was part of Culture Night because after we did our practices, boom, we studied. And it actually helped me. Some people actually got bad grades. Their grades got worse, but mine actually got better. Oh, man, it, it just goes to show how different things have been. And just honestly, I, I think that is a good way to end it off. I mean, there's a there's definitely going to be a different journey that um, these new generations are going to have to face. But again, I have to thank you, um, Dr. Ray, a lot of the other cats that have come before us to just be like, yeah, they, they did this research. They experienced these kinds of things in life. So that way we wouldn't have to at the end of the day. So I got to thank you for that. Well, thank you, Alfredo, because by you putting this, you know, in electronic format, hopefully some people, you, you know, will learn some things about the history of, of San Diego's role with Essie Pasa and, and maybe reach out to you or me to get asked more questions about, you know, what had happened and, and I'm excited to for the next episode so I can hear um, how else um, our stories fit together. Honestly, with the amount of connections and everything that was um, taken from this, like I'm probably going to have more people like Lizelle on this. Like I, I mentioned that before and just how those connections with like Sal and Tuiar and just pretty much like how all those threads connected and you just contributed to that. So thank you again for being on this and Again, like you said, I really do hope people do get something out of this, whether it be like for people from Esipasa, Paca, KP, anyone in the community for that matter. I really hope they do get something out of this. But yeah, this is just one of those uh, connecting threads within this storyline that we call community. And again, thank you for taking the time to to be here once again, Kuya Jerry, especially now that it's like 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Yeah. <laughs>
I can't believe that's actually late to me. <laughs> it, it wasn't like that. Back in my SE Pasa days, I'd be driving home right now from like a couple of Bayans meeting. See, <laughs> so, that, that that's what's going on, man. Once you hit a certain age, it's just like, oh, no, 10, 10 p.m. Like, it's time to go to bed. Yeah, I, I hope you get some folks like from Kababayan on because back in those days, they were actually their GBMs are going to like 11 o'clock at night. They used to pack their GBMs with like 700 people. And when when Essie Pasa would roll in and they would do their thing and wow, it was a party. Literally, we would literally all go to the restaurant across the street from there and there would literally be hundreds of us going to that just crowding that one small restaurant <laughs> dang okay if anyone from kaba is listening right now like yo we we need to have some conversations especially some of yeah. the, the ogs you know I, i'd say i'm so impressed like back in those days kaba did break dancing and commercials in their pcn and they did this one thing with break dancing and sneakling back in this i don't know if anyone has it's on vhs though not dvd it's not even dvd and i was amazed like and th- i think that one pcn was six hours long what hold up wait a minute i'm gonna have to find that vhs somewhere if if i find someone from kaba that was during like that time or maybe even just maybe even a little younger than that that may have that like i want to see that because i know there's some connections with just i mean there's that connection with kaba and america's best dance crew and just how yeah. like, those other people yeah, connect kaba modern and, yeah yeah, yeah. But yeah, that that's definitely another one that I want to touch on eventually, maybe even just the whole season with Essie Pasa alone. But this is just my brain going off and like brainstorming and just sort sort of like manifesting it. But yeah, yeah. it's the B boy in you, right? <laughs> yes, yes. There's a lot of. And I oh, was ahead. a B boy back in the day too. <laughs> this is another conversation we're gonna have to have another time about that. But like. Damn, that that was definitely a lot of information, and I'm thankful that again, thankful that you took the time to to be out here to, tonight. And yeah, I really hope that the people that are listening right now have gotten something out of this. And I guess with that being said, again, this is just another thread within this community, and I hope that we'll continue to thread these connections with the next episodes to come. So thank you all for listening, and we will catch you on the next one. Peace.